0: You want to know what's going on behind the scenes for domain name owners rights, policies, business partnerships. The Internet Commerce Association is a nonprofit that advocates for the rights and interests of domain name owners and related service providers. They recently had a webinar over a hundred people attended. Um, we wanted to make it available to you here so that if you missed it or you want to re-watch a segment, You're able to. They do amazing work. Camila Sekovitz and Zach Muskovich were the primary speakers at this webinar. They covered com, net, and org, not only the price increases, but what's happening at those registries. Also, some fascinating conversation on UDRP reform, some who is info, all sorts of good stuff. Enjoy the show. Many thanks to our sponsors who make it possible to bring this to the general public as well. First, serious about online trading, secure your funds, keep your merchandise safe, and use a company that keeps the buyer and seller protected the whole way through. That's escrow.com, payments you can trust.
1: FD was built by domain investors to increase your inquiries, sales, and profit. Forget spreadsheets and archived emails. Manage your entire investment portfolio in one place using a secure and completely confidential platform. Learn more at ft.com. That's E-F-T-Y, Ft.com. Uh Welcome, everyone. My name is Camila Sankiewicz. Uh, I've been the Executive Director of the ICA for close to two years now, and I am, um, I am very excited to welcome all of you to ICA's first ever public membership call. Um, this is also um, the very first time we have well over 100 attendees who have registered for the call, both members and non-members. We're very excited about that fact. Uh, we are very happy to tell you more about our work and um, give you a better idea of our mission. And so ICA was formed over two decades ago. We are a nonprofit organization representing individuals and companies from all different walks of the domain name industry um, and from across the globe. And that includes um, domain, uh, domain investors, brokers, bloggers, attorneys, marketplaces, parking companies, registrars, registries, really, anyone. Our policy direction is set by our leadership team and consultation with our membership. Um, Our six-person board consists of the head of GoDaddy's aftermarket division, the chief counsel of CEDO and then leaders representing the investing, monetization, brokering, development, and development, development sectors of the domain name in industry. Um, our policy positions are developed by our general counsel, Zach Moskowitz, and you'll get to know him in just a little bit. Um, and he's been a domain attorney for over 20 years and has been doing an incredible job on behalf of the ICA. Um, we're very excited to, um, to work with him. And so as excited as I am about welcoming so many of you to this call, uh, I also wanted to let you know that this is the first time that we are working with Zoom's um, webinar feature in such a large scale. So apologies in advance for any glitches that we might, um, you know, that we might encounter. Hopefully not. Um, so why not? Why are we opening up the call to the public? Uh, we felt that um, we are really the industry, we are at a critical juncture on so many issues that are of the importance to, to the ICANN community at large and, uh, and that's why we wanted to make it available um, to everyone. And Zach will speak about these issues in detail in just a moment. And so just uh, a few, you know, some information about, uh, about the call before we get started. So the call will be recorded and it will be available for viewing later. Um, we will reserve time at the end of the call for some of our questions um, those of you who are using the zoom uh, webinar app you can or just the zoom app you can um, chat with other uh, attendees and with um, with ICA members uh, during the during the call um, but if you have questions for Zach or myself please uh, type them into the Q&A and a uh, Q and A window, and we'll be able to. We'll do our best to address uh, to address them. As I said, we'll wait to the end of the call to address most of the questions. Um, if we have time, we'll 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 take a few as we go along. If we are not able to get to your question during the call, please uh, please get in touch. Um, I'll provide my email in the in the chat window, um, and we'll be happy to respond um, to respond uh, at a later time. Um, also, uh, I'll provide some links to our website where you can learn more about our board of directors, uh, our members, um, and also more information about how you can, how you can join the ICA and become a member. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Zach.
2: Thank you. I uh, issued Amendment 35, uh, which essentially gave permission for VeriSign to pursue a price increase with ICANN. And, and, you know, the exact language Of uh, amendment 35 is crucial what it says is that their sign and I can may agree to amend section 7.3 di of the registration group which is essentially they may agree to change the price of dot-com because you'll recall that it's been fixed at 785 since 2012 and it was it was fixed uh, at Uh, at 785 is the wholesale price because essentially the U S government stepped in to prevent ICANN from agreeing to a raise uh, to an increase in the prices. And and the increase that was contemplated back in 2012 is very similar to the increase that the amendment 35 contemplates now, essentially a a, seven percent up to a 7% increase in four out of six years of, of the registry agreement. And, And in this particular case, it can commence two years, uh, uh, from the effective date of the amendment. However, where does it stand now? In, in our view, ICANN now needs to make the decision. NTIA doesn't make the decision for dot-com pricing. All it, all it has done is is permitted VeriSign to pursue, pursue this uh, potential price increase. And so then the question really becomes, what justification is there for ICANN to approve uh, an increase in, in prices. And so the way, the way that we tend to look at this is that we ask ourselves the question, who really is entitled to set the price? Um, the .com registry is a tremendously successful registry. It's been well operated by our friends at VeriSign. It's a well-managed company, it's a public company, um, and they've done very well with it. But the .com registry preexisted Verisign's uh, management of it, and Verisign is a, is a contracted manager of the registry. Now, who is the owner of the registry? Well, really, there's no true owner of the Internet. There's no true owner of the registry. I think the closest we could say is that ICANN is uh, perhaps a trustee, a, a trustee or a steward of the .com registry. And perhaps we could also say that Verisign is its trusted superintendent of, of the uh, registry. So similar to you know an apartment building that has a superintendent. And who sets the price for rent? Well, generally speaking, without, almost without exception, it's the landlord, the owner of the property that sets the price, not the registry operator, not the superintendent who's contracted to operate it on behalf of the landlord. It's an important distinction to remember, because if if the landlord is generally entitled to set the price of rent, we need to ask the landlord uh, to maintain that right in the context of the dot-com registry. So even though uh, the the registry agreement permits Verisign to have a perpetual right of renewal of the agreement, the registry agreement does not afford Verisign uh, the right to set its own prices. NTIA confirmed that. It's it's up to ICANN to set the prices. So then let's see, what are the justifications for an increase in price? Frankly, we don't see any justification for an increase in price. What is the price of a domain name? It's a combination of the, the physical and technical costs of maintaining the technical aspects of the registry combined with the service provider's fees. We know from looking at the .in registry, the Australian registry and others, uh, that the cost of the physically maintaining the technical aspects of the registry operations might be fairly low. It could be one dollars, could be two, it could be three, it could be four. It's, it's something less than the actual wholesale cost of the domain name. What makes up the 785 currently to a large extent is likely the service fees charged by the registry operator, their superintendent under contract. And so ICANN should be asking itself the question, the board of directors should be asking themselves the question, what justification is there to raise prices? Is it needed because more funds are required to maintain the, the, uh, the reliability and professionalism of the registry? That's, there's no evidence of that being the case is is it required because there's a more dynamic marketplace for domain names therefore justifying an increase in costs uh, of wholesale costs for dot-com I, I have a hard time believing that because if, if there were to be uh increased competition uh that dot the com registry is facing that would tend just you know i'm no economist but i mean it's pretty pretty common sense that in the face of Greater competition that tends to push prices down, not raise prices up. I think that uh, you know we've got to conclude that the reason for raising prices is is, is not a mystery. Uh, you know their sign uh, by all rights should want to raise more money for their shareholders, and you know we can understand that. However, should I can permit that to happen, we're talking about. Such big numbers here. I mean, if the proposed fee increases were to go into effect by the end of the six-year agreement, the fee for each .com domain name would increase to 10.29 per year, a jump of 30 percent from current levels. Even conservatively assuming that in six years' time there will only be 140 million .com domain names, and that increase of 2.44 per domain name would result in 341 million dollars per year just do the math we're talking about potentially billions of dollars where what justification is there for the transfer from registrants to the private operator the superintendent of the registry we think verisign should make money we think it should be successful it is successful but this is a serious policy question as big as any policy question that i can has faced about what justifies an increase in price. Now, it's of a, it's a concern to ICA members, certainly. Some ICA members have a handful of domains, some have 20, some have thousands. Realistically, an increase in 30, of 30% is absorbable by many, if not most, ICA members. But let's look beyond ICA members and look at the registrants, the 140 million registrants in the world they are each going to be forced, if there were to be a price increase, to pay a few dollars more that they could probably absorb too. But collectively, look at the hundreds of millions of dollars that are being taken from them and put into a single pocket that is generally outside of the ICANN ecosystem. And that too is a serious policy question that must be considered by ICANN. So we, we certainly hope that there will be a greater discussion uh, of a uh, potential dot-com price increase. We don't think there's any justification for one. And we have yet to see any evidence uh, that s- suggests one is, is uh, appropriate. I mean, the root cause of this problem probably is the fact that the dot-com registry has not been put out for uh for open bid and of course that can't happen because of the agreed language in the existing registry agreement but i mean this this is not a a new issue in 2008 uh department of commerce wrote this to the then share of ICANN. finally ICANN should require competitive bidding for renewals of a gtld registry agreement rather than granting the incumbent operator a perpetual right to renew without competition such a mechanism would both assist in disciplining the conduct of the incumbent during the initial term insofar as the incumbent would want to maximize the likelihood of renewal, ensure the benefits of competition when potential operators bid for the right to operate a GTLD in the renewal term. To me, those words from 2008 from the United States Department of Justice still hold true today. So uh, That concludes my remarks about the dot-com pricing. Let's just see if there's some questions uh, right now uh, before we move on, and we can always circle back to this. Camila, do we have any questions you'd like to propose to me? Hey,
3: Zach, so we don't have any questions right now about this topic, Um, so I say we just go move on and
0: see
2: All right, so you, you know what, I, I'll, I'll add one final remark then, perhaps in the absence of a question at Absolutely. this time. So, you know, there's there was a lot of pushback um, against the NTIA's decision uh, to allow Verisign to pursue the price increase from various stakeholders. Many of our members, a lot of people, are upset by that. For the reasons that I've explained but the lack of justification but there's a very important aspect that we actually see eye to eye in an important respect with NTIA and that's that NTIA has, has taken the position as the Department of Justice has historically that com has tremendous market power. It's not easy for someone to change their brand and domain name uh, once they've already committed to building their home on com A significant price increase would uh, be a a hardship such that if someone were to charge a million dollars for a dot-com renewal, many companies would just have to pay it. And there hasn't been any evidence of uh, new GTLDs presenting a genuine threat uh, to the dominance of dot-com, at least these days. And I mean, Jonathan Zook uh, put together with his team uh, and committee a tremendous uh, report on this issue in the consumer trust working group. And uh, you know, one of one of the statements that they, they made in it is in principle, the current substantial increase in the number of GTLDs provides an opportunity for ICANN to evaluate the claim of some that legacy GTLDs remain market dominant, and for ICANN to re-examine its earlier claim that the entry of new GTLDs in much greater numbers that had occurred earlier has weakened the rationale for price regulation. However, in the absence of adequate data on the wholesale prices actually charged by both legacy and new GTLDs, the review team has been unable to address this issue. In recommendation two, the review team suggests that I can collect additional data to remedy the shortcomings in the future. So in other words, there's an absence of data uh, to suggest that .com uh, is facing any uh, significant market dynamics uh, as NTIA had indicated as a justification for its uh, its new policy. Uh, this working group has come to a similar conclusion that there's just there's not enough data to suggest that dot-com is uh, under any kind of market pressure. In fact Verisign's own industry brief suggests that dot-com continues to enjoy significant increases year over year. But getting back to the common ground of the NTIA is, is that We both believe that price caps are necessary to constrain the market power of dot com they've changed the policy from 2012 to say that you know it should be a seven seven percent cap in order to restrain the market power of dot com we believe that it should be zero for the explanations that i've mentioned there's there's no increased cost to the registry uh there's already a significant service fee built into the existing wholesale cost but so the question really isn't uh, whether dot-com has market power and whether it needs to be constrained, the, the, the difference in view is by how much, okay. All right, so I'm going to switch gears uh, to uh, the dot-org registry agreement. Um, and we've got some very good friends at, at PIR, we respect their work, uh, they have, do tremendous good works through uh, the Internet Society uh, and you know we, 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 we know that they'll understand that when we have a difference in, in policy uh, viewpoint about their registry agreement that it's done in good faith and you know that's the great thing about ICANN from you know, the minimal uh, experience I've had to date over the past year representing the ICA is that there's disagreements in, in policy, but people of good faith and good nature uh, can agree to disagree on occasion. And I, I think this is one of them. Um, with, with what's recently occurred with uh, .org and as well as .biz, .info, and .asia, is uh, ICANN has, has put forth... Uh, Proposed renewal agreements of their registry agreements for uh, for comment, and there was two two main issues that that stood out to us from that. Uh, the first is that you know it's it's an almost an article of faith as you know that ICANN is a uh, bottom up. Uh, multi-stakeholder policy development model uh, that uh, you know that is unique in the world and has been to a significant degree successful in many respects and so when policies are are developed by ICANN they're supposed to be bottom up and not supposed to be done behind closed doors not supposed to be done by staff without consulting uh, the various stakeholders but yet with the the proposed.org agreement and this isn't about .org in particular because it's, it's been done you know I think eight times already despite many protests by people within the ICANN community to stop doing this and this is what I'm talking about I'm a member of the ICANN uh, Rights Protection Mechanism Working Group many people on this call are many people who aren't on this call are and one of the chief mandates of the working group is to examine URS and to see whether it should become a uh, consensus policy across all GTLDs. It's an important question. Some people feel it should, some people feel uh, it should. This is what people have been spending hours a week for a long time working on. And we, were, uh, we have staff working on it. Collectively, there's millions of person hours that are millions of dollars worth of person hours dedicated to answering this issue and examining it, and there's experts from the trademark bar, from civil society, from elsewhere. And yet, that question has become rendered almost moot by the .org agreement like other proposed registry agreements. What what staff has essentially done is to say they want to uh, uh, introduce URS to to .org, notwithstanding that this is an issue that's being currently deliberated, by the working group. Now, it's hard to be charitable when faced with this kind of thing because it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened about eight times already, plus with .info, .biz, .asia, and .org now. ICANN is well aware that the working group's work is underway. What other conclusion can be drawn from staff unilaterally doing this, other than the working group is just engaged in busy work where when real policy making is done behind closed doors and then sent out for a perfunctory comment. It's not acceptable and it does a real disservice to the credibility of the multi-stakeholder model. That's the first issue with the .org proposed contract. The, se- the second issue is that, unlike with the .com uh, Amendment 35, With .org, what is being proposed by staff again is to align this registry agreement with new GTLD agreements for some reason. In other words, to remove all price caps altogether for .org, all price caps, not 7% in uh, four out of six years commencing two years from now, all price caps so that the registry can charge whatever they want. Why? Because new GTLDs are doing it. New GTLDs are a completely different animal, in my respectful view, uh, from a legacy TLD like .org has a very cherished, pl- cherished place in the namespace. It's the home for 10 or uh, nearly 11 million nonprofit organizations, charities, internetcommerce.org, redcross.org, wikipedia.org, savethechildren.org. Millions of nonprofit charities large and small who are engaged in the public interest have made their home on .org in the expectation that there'd be stable pricing, stable pricing governed by the ICANN registry agreement. Now to remove these price caps altogether means that a, a, a charitable organization, whether it's a small or large one, could face untold fee increases in the unforeseeable future. At some point in time, the registry can say, you know what, that 10 bucks that you're paying now, we're going to make that a 1,000 bucks. Now, the, the other side of the story is that, well, you know, PIR is a responsible manager. It hasn't always taken advantage of its ability to raise prices by 10%, which is enjoyed to date. It would never cut its nose off to, to spite its face by raising its rates so exponentially. And there's something to be said for that. And I believe that may, may very well be the case. But, you know, as an attorney who deals in contracts and as business people who deal in contracts, we don't tend to, uh, to uh, create commercial relations with contractors on the basis of faith alone. We put the, we put the parameters and the constraints in writing. And if the registry operator has no intention of raising its fees exponentially, there's no reason that can't go into the agreement too. So, I mean, uh, there's another uh, point that's made in favor of the increases is, you know, look, the existing registrants can, can uh, renew their, their registration for 10 years in advance at the current rates, thereby foreclosing any possibility of a rate increase within the next 10 years. Well, you know, first of all, that, that would be a major win, uh, lump sum windfall for a registry operator. If you have 10 million names, 10 bucks a piece, uh, 100 million bucks times 10 years, do the, do the math. It's a lot of money second of all charities and not-for-profits are not paying close attention to this issue by and large they uh they are not necessarily attending ICANN means they're not aware of this there's no requirement that they be notified necessarily of of the potential price increase and at the end of the day a dot org registrant even if it's even if it only faces a fifty percent increase again affordable across ten million registrations it 's a tremendous amount of money that 's transferring that hundreds of millions of dollars from the from nonprofits and charities to another to a registry operator who then distributes it to an excellent not for profit the internet society. But the justification for this eventuality is non existent in our view I can. As the trustee of the registry, this legacy TLD, that's a different animal than new tlds in our view has the obligation responsibly to the wider internet community, to its existing .org registrants, uh, to maintain stable pricing, not remove all price caps and leave us all exposed to the unknown. Okay, do we have any questions particularly about the .org, uh, renewal contract and Camila if not we will carry on to yet another issue.
3: I don't see any questions in the uh, Q&A regarding that topic. Uh, There are a few regarding the dot com. But maybe you'll go back to that and you can carry on. We have time we can answer that.
2: We'll we'll, we'll circle back to that. Sounds good. wanna uh, send out a, a, a shout out to our uh, brothers and sisters down under in Australia. Uh, you know, with the ICA has certain policy issues that are always on its horizon, you know, and dot-com pricing is one, one of them, of course. Uh, and, but we can't always foresee what, uh, what uh, turns policy will take. And recently we became aware of uh, a report that came out uh, by the Australian uh, Domain Registration Authority uh, that was making some pretty dramatic uh, policy proposals to the would, uh, board. And uh, the Australian domain investors and Australian registrants reached out to us and asked us to uh, see what we can do to help. And so we put together uh, a nine page uh, letter containing arguments uh, based upon a, a pretty um, careful review uh, of their uh, final report. And the, the feedback has been tremendous by the by, uh, Australians on this. Uh, they appreciate what the ICA is does, uh, does and did in this particular case, even though it doesn't fulfill our core mandate. We have members from Australia too, and we try to serve them as well. I mean, what, just to describe to you what, what has, what is, uh, what's underway in Australia is that Australia has never been a particularly uh, uh, friendly environment for domain investing. They, you know, right, right from the get go, uh, their policies have uh, have put restrictions on, on uh, who can register a domain name. Just grab some paper, just one second. There it is. And so essentially what they, what they realized, the draft was reported, and listen, I acknowledge they put a lot of work into this. They had some consultations they had some focus groups, had some studies, none about uh, this, mind you, but they put a lot of effort into it. But one of the things they recognize is that, you know, e- even uh, the existing rules under uh, Com.au do, under AUDA's regulations have allowed has allowed domain investment to flourish. There's domain investors there even despite the restrictions that have have gone on to date. Uh, it's a very there's a number of very technical changes that AUDA is now considering, uh, but essentially what they're trying to do is restrict um, restrict the space even further. And one of the ways. Uh, they've done that, uh, or attempting to do that, has changed some wording of their existing policy. Uh, so previously, uh, you weren't supposed to register a domain name if uh, its sole purpose was for resale. Uh, now they changed it to, to primary purpose uh, for resale is prohibited, and they've given some other tests. I won't get into the technicalities of the proposed revisions, but I will try to, you know, convey to you what the general problem with it is, and that's that domain investment has thrived in Australia to date, despite uh, their existing rules, and their, their proposed new rules uh, are, are so vague, so uncertain, so unenforceable, so messy, leave so many unanswered questions, that really uh, any realistic person looking at this situation is going to must reasonably conclude that these proposed changes won't make one bit of difference to the existing landscape which, is, which allows domain name investment. And on top of that, the, the big fear is that uh, existing registrants who played by the rules Domain investors who who registered domain names, who've invested their own funds, their families' funds, mom and pops, small business people, large business people, who who invested in domain names could face cancellation of them retroactively, essentially at their end of the registration period. And that could that could leave an impact of hundreds of thousands of domain name cancellations. It will affect registrars, it'll affect registry revenues, it'll affect the credibility of the domain name space, and that's aside from the direct effect it will have on registrants. But the, the good news is, is that the feedback that we've had is that there's, uh, there's uh, people in Australia who are seriously reconsidering these uh, ill advised uh, steps this misadventure, and i 'm uh, uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, uh, better heads and cooler heads will prevail and uh, the I, I would aboard uh, will uh, use great caution in, uh, before it accepts any of these proposals and will uh, wa- and these will be walked back eventually so it 's really up to our Australian brothers and sisters to uh, uh, to take control of the situation, do what they can, and they've set up a system to allow people to express their views. It's vote.com.au. It has hundreds of people who have already expressed their uh, views on these policy proposals. And so I encourage you to also express your views in that method.
0: First, serious about online trading? Secure your funds, keep your merchandise safe and use a company that keeps the buyer and seller protected the whole way through. That's escrow.com. Payments you can trust.
1: FT was built by domain investors to increase your inquiries, sales, and profit. Forget spreadsheets and archived emails. Manage your entire investment portfolio in one place using a secure and completely confidential platform. Learn more at FT.com. That's E-F-T-Y. FT.com.
2: Okay, we're going to switch gears once again. And uh, I kind of feel like talking about UDRP reform for a few minutes. So let's, let's talk about UDRP reform. So, you know, if, if, there's, if there's a couple issues that, uh, that really um, uh, focus uh, the ICA, one of them is really UDRP reform. Uh, UDRP uh, comes into play for a, a lot of registrants who own generic domain names uh, because they're, they're valuable domain names and they're coveted domain names by others. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for uh, uh, trademark owners and even non-trademark owners uh, to attempt to misuse the UDRP in order to obtain through this procedure a coveted valuable domain name. Um, and, you know, the, the other concern is that. You know, there's, there's many, many good and qualified panelists and, and some not so good, not so qualified, but one thing is certain is that there's no domain name lawyers that uh, are on the panel, uh, but there's plenty of trademark lawyers. But, but that, that aside, the ICA believes that UDRP has been a generally effective uh, dispute resolution tool. It's been uh, effective for 20 years. Most of the time it gets it right with some significant exceptions that end up having to go to court. And we'll talk more about that later, particularly with regards to the IGO NGO issue briefly. Uh, but when it, comes, when it comes to protection of trademark rights, the ICA is very supportive of the trademark bar. We have no interest in, uh, in uh, helping cyber squatters. We have every interest in allowing trademark owners to effectively and fairly assert their rights through the UDRP. Uh, Nevertheless, you know, it's been 20 years without a review. Thankfully, there's a review underway through the RPM Uh, Rights Protection Mechanism Working Group that we are participating in. Still, it's very early days. We're still talking about sunrise, sunset, uh, um, uh, and URS in the claims notice, but hopefully we'll be getting into the meeting tables of the UDRP aspect soon. Uh, But in anticipation of that, the the ICA put together, you know, uh, last year, a UDRP reform policy platform. And the gist of it is, is that uh, the policy itself can remain more or less as is. Where the reforms are required are procedural aspects. And I'll give you a few examples because we we have, you know, well over a dozen distinct proposals and we're working on more. But, you know, the the kinds of things that we're looking at to give you a general idea is that, you know, there's, I think, uh, five dispute resolution providers that are accredited by ICANN now, but it's an accredited and forget system. In other words, once you're accredited, there's no ICANN oversight, there's no uh, ICANN UDRP commissioner, there's no standards of conduct, there's no uh, um, uh, consistency amongst providers. They've been left entirely alone for 20 years and it's a remarkable state of affairs for a procedure this important that millions, you know, Mark, mark, M-A-R-Q-U, uh, e, uh, Europe uh, Trademark Association, wrote a great letter to ICANN about this issue and they explained that, you know, millions of dollars go through this UDRP system, we I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, and there's no oversight for it. So one of the things that the, that the ICA has uh, really been calling for is to put dispute resolution providers under contract, like every other kind of uh, contracted party service provider within the real world and within ICANN itself. There's no reason to have such an exceptional situation where a dispute resolution provider is left entirely to its own devices, no complaint mechanism, no... uh, requirements in terms of its uh, quality control, allowing them to uh, institute their own supplemental rules, which diverge and are inconsistent with the, the actual UDRP rules, uh, allow them to pick and choose panelists uh, uh, to make themselves more attractive to complainants in many cases, uh, that there's no complaint procedure when a panelist uh, gets, uh, is off uh, as a loose cannon, uh, you know, and, and there's also other things that we'd like to see happen. For example, the WIPO uh, has done a remarkable job over the years of creating what it's called the consensus view, which is kind of a, 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 a Bible or guide of, of interpretations of the UDRP. Uh, and we appreciate that in principle, and they've done, they do a very good job with that. However, we'd like to see that expanded so that all DRPs, all dispute resolution providers participate in that, all stakeholders participate in the formulation of it because otherwise, it's truly not a consensus view as far as we're concerned. It's a view of one particular party trying to do its best, but we think it would really benefit from much wider input from different parties. Now, in, in terms of next steps for UDRP reform, you know, I can report that we've had excellent bilateral meetings with other uh, uh, UDRP stakeholders, particularly from uh, the trademark bar, and uh, there's there's many things that they're looking for. Uh, the realists among them understand that there's many things that we're looking for. And I am cautiously optimistic that uh, we will be able to reach good compromises, good consensus with them. Uh, everyone being reasonable and international while recognizing the U-T-R-P, uh works, but it can be improved. And so I'm looking forward to continuing those conversations and hopefully we'll be able to report back to you uh, about some uh, concrete uh, consensus is reached, even whether it's directly within the working group or outside just on a bilateral or other multilateral basis outside of the ICANN working group. Uh, that make real progress improvements to UDRP. We've also heard some indications that ICANN is also looking to uh, uh, lead a best practices um, kind of standard, uh, so that just speed resolution providers will at least have this baseline to abide by until the working group's done its work, which could take some time. So uh, I'm going to now switch gears once again, and talk about um, the IGO, NGO, Uh, Working group and the recent proposal to council uh, regarding its work. And just by way of background, you know, this was um, another working group that was in existence for four years. In other words, volunteers with the assistance of staff for four years uh, studied the question of whether. international governmental organizations, non-governmental organizations had sufficient rights protection mechanisms uh, under uh, the auspices of ICANN through the UDRP in order to protect their uh, identifiers. And, you know, this working group uh, uh, was uh, was chaired by Phil Korn, formerly General Counsel of the ICA, co-chaired by uh, Petter, uh, an IP lawyer from Denmark, uh, had representatives from the registries, registrars, uh, registrants, uh, various constituencies. It was a small working group, but they they even hired an outside uh, professor, Swain, of international law. They were looking at some very complex questions, and it was the first working group that I really joined uh, in my time at ICANN, and and, uh, they did an admirable job. Uh, but they've got a, uh, had a lot of uh, pushback um, uh, from some quarters about the work that they did. In particular, the, the biggest complaint was from, you know, some IGOs and NGOs were essentially saying that, listen, you know, uh, the conclusions and, and recommendations that the working group reached didn't take into account the comments and advice that we gave, uh, and um, the uh, outcome is just totally unacceptable. And so, you know, one of the proposals that the ICA made in the, in the context of this working group towards the very end, when it was looking like uh, there was going to be a consensus uh, uh, on most of the report's recommendations with one particular issue that had a division amongst uh, the groups, is that, you know, what it doesn't sound like there's gonna be consensus within the working group, entire uh, complete consensus amongst the working group. And we're also hearing some uh, more than grumblings, quite vociferous dissatisfaction from uh, IGOs and their representatives, then perhaps the the best move is to move this over to the RPM working group. That proposal didn't fly at the time, uh, but it looks like it's flown now. Uh, The latest is that uh, uh, there's a resolution before council that essentially put, puts this issue before uh, the RPM working group. Not that the RPM working group uh, uh, needs any more work, and it's a real shame that uh, the expertise that the original working group developed may not completely transfer over to the to the RPM working group. But you know, the resolution put forward does have some positive aspects to it. It says that. Uh, resolutions uh, recommendations one two three and four of the final report uh are um accepted uh, recommendation five is not accepted but it, it directs the working group essentially uh to ensure that uh, um, uh, any uh rights protection mechanism does not affect the right and ability of registrants to file judicial proceedings in a court of competent jurisdiction i'm running out of time so i'm just going to just close that, uh, close that open question about what, what essentially the issue was there. The issue is that there's a grand bargain between uh, registrants and trademark owners essentially that led to the UDRP originally 20 years ago. Trademark owners were saying we need a fast, efficient, simple system for adjudication of international trademark disputes that involve domain names. And registrants essentially said, okay, but if the outcome isn't satisfactory, we need the right to appeal this to court. That's the so-called grand bargain. And what the IGOs were essentially want to do is to is to have a, a new system uh, separate and apart from the UDRP because the UDRP presented a very serious problem for them as far as they were concerned, because part of what the UDRP uh, provides is that the registrant has the right to take a, a decision to court, and IGOs feel very, very strongly that they are immune from state jurisdiction from courts, and so they couldn't agree to uh, to being subjected to a decision being overturned. And so what that, what uh, what the working group ultimately recommended was that, listen, uh, if a registrant loses a, a UDRP to an IGO, uh, and then is entitled to take it to court, and the IGO fights in court and says we don't have, we are not under the jurisdiction of the court and the court agrees, that would have the effect of leaving the UDRP decision hanging out there, valid, compelling the transfer of the domain name by the, the register who will abide by the ICANN order, uh, and leave the register without any remedy because the court has said that it can't intervene. And so in that, in that situation, what the, uh, uh, what the majority in the IGO working group uh, proposed is that it, the, uh, the underlying UDRP decision be vacated essentially, because otherwise it would leave the it would have broken the grand bargain because the registrant is allowed to take it to court if the if the IGO who commenced the entire procedure uh, uh, wins the UDRP but doesn't want to lose. Ultimately, in court, it can fight jurisdiction there and deprive the registrant of its remedy. And so, we felt that was unfair. This is a complicated issue that's now going to be before the RPM, and I wish them and all of us lots of luck with it. So, um, let me see. We have uh, 14 minutes left, and so, Camila, I'm going to. I want to just talk about GDPR really quickly. I'll only have, I'm only going to spend three minutes on it. So, a lot of people might have expected that I, the ICA would uh, would be all in favor of GDPR and getting rid of who is nothing could have been further from the truth the ICA has taken the position that uh, who is access is crucial for for our businesses uh, we use the we have have used uh, who is for many, many crucial things you know everything from uh, Uh, validating ownership of domain name purchase in a sale transaction, uh, for escrow agents uh, looking to see who the owners are, for uh, uh, um, locating a person for service of of civil actions, as an attorney, I do this. For asset investigation recovery, many attorneys do this. Checking title for domain names to ascertain whether you're purchasing a domain name from the legitimate owner of it is crucial. Uh, There's so many Reasons, you know, uh, escrow services rely on WHOIS to verify that they're doing business with the actual registrant. Uh, Aftermarkets rely uh, on this. It has really thrown not just the IP bar, but the domain investment community for a loop not to have access to WHOIS details. And so we have actively supported the BC and the IPC's efforts for in this. We contributed uh, our efforts in in, uh, drafting parts of the uh, joint IPC uh, IPC and BC accreditation and access model. Uh, We really appreciate all the efforts that the IPC and BC members have made in terms of the time commitment to to participate in the expedited uh, policy development uh, process on this. Phase two is starting shortly. That's where the real nitty gritty is going to happen, but determining who is a legitimate interest. Is it just going to be cybersecurity groups and IP attorneys or is consumer protection going to really ta- uh, be treated fairly so that uh, um, Uh, Journalists can conduct their research, academics can conduct their research, attorneys can conduct their research, Uh, brokers can conduct their research, buyers and sellers can be certain they're buying from the right party. These are all, broadly speaking, consumer protection issues, and so we plan on monitoring this issue closely, continuing to contribute on it. We'd really like to see somehow, some way that there can be uh, easy and continued access to who is details, uh, but uh, there's a vociferous uh, opposition to this and it's gonna be a big challenge at phase two. Okay, it's uh, one forty-nine and I- I'm done my remarks. So Camila, I'm in your hands.
3: Amazing, thank you. Thank you so much. Can you hear me?
2: Loud and clear.
3: Amazing. Uh, so we do have a, a, a few few questions. Um, um, I'll start with um, Bill uh, Sweetman's question. He's asking: Is there a risk that Auda isn't so that the Auda's anti-domainer sentiment could spread to other ccTLDs um, registries? In,
2: in in short, no. The uh the. the AUDA has always been like this uh, to one degree or another. This is really nothing new. This is them just trying to, in, in my respectful view, uh, fiddle around with their existing rules and attempt to uh, make them stricter. But really the environment's always been like that. And uh, I, I believe that they will eventually come around and see what they're trying to do is, is tremendously impractical and harmful for themselves. Next question. So uh,
3: we'll go back to dot-com pricing. So um, does ICANN have an obligation to protect the public at large for an unjust unjustified price increase? And uh, why isn't it acting in uh, the public's interest?
2: Right. I, I mean, what, what's remarkable here is that, uh, you know, the United States government, NTA has, has clearly taking the position that uh, a price caps are required to constrain the market power of dot-com, uh, but the actual pricing they leave to ICANN. ICANN says, "Well, we don't want to get involved in pricing. Uh, so who's supposed to be looking after pricing? I mean, the, you know, it, the I, uh, registrants need to be protected by somebody. Somebody's got to look, be looking after registrants. At the end of the day, that's what ICANN is here for: is to look after registrants to make sure that they have access to a stable, uh, and fair internet and fair pricing." and There needs to be studies done before there's any increase in pricing. There's no justification for an increase. And at the end of the day, it's the ICANN board who's going to have to answer to 148 million registrants if things get out of control for dot-com pricing. Next question. Um,
3: All right. So we have a question from uh, Kevin Dabney. Uh, If the dot-com registry agreement has... um, Price fixed at $7.85 through 2024. Why would ICANN want to amend this early to shift all, all of its wealth to one
0: private company for the public at large?
2: Right. So, um, you know, th- these are very complicated agreements that have been amended over and over again over the years. And one of the provisions that Verisign is hanging its hat on in, in the uh, uh, current amendment to their registry agreement. The one that's in place now is that, you know, the parties, Verisign and ICANN shall negotiate in good faith uh, to uh, inter-ally, amongst other things, ensure that uh, there is consistency between the, um, the uh, ICANN registry agreement and the cooperative agreement. And so, f- from VeriSign's perspective, perhaps, you know, they feel it's as simple as well. NTIA has uh, said that we could seek more money uh, for our services uh, from ICANN. And uh, since they've done that, uh, let's make our registry agreement consistent with that. Well, I mean, the, the, the more astute uh, view and the one that I personally subscribe to and the ICA does is that uh, consistency with the uh, uh, agreement. with with the uh, cooperative agreement with with, uh, Amendment 35, doesn't require ICANN to raise prices. In fact, NTI specifically said it's up to ICANN and VeriSign to agree if they agree to raise prices and that it would still maintain consistency with uh, with the cooperative agreement if ICANN merely declined to raise prices, as it should. Next question.
3: Thank you. So um, how important is it to standardize the legacy and the new GTLD extensions on the same agreement?
2: How important is it? I don't mm-hmm. think it's, it's important at all. I mean, it's, uh, it blows me away because, you know, uh, just who, who came up with this idea that we should be aligning uh, these uh, registered agreements. New GTLDs are bought and paid for by private enterprises who came up with their business plans, came up with the ideas for their new GTLD, participate in auctions, uh, are within a picket fence that ICANN doesn't uh, get involved in their pricing. They will rise or fall depending on how they respond to the markets. It's a completely different animal than a legacy TLD. For example, dot comers would 100 50 million people who've made their homes there already over the past 20 plus years. And so in my view, alignment is the last thing that we should be doing. We should be treating different animals like different animals. The new GTLDs should, uh, should be allowed to do their thing. But the existing legacy TLDs should be by a different rulebook and that rulebook should have price restrictions because that's what registrants have come to expect and rely upon.
3: Okay, thank you. So we have a question from um, Jonathan Suk. He says, Thanks for re- uh, referencing the CCT report. Worth noting that there was uh, also no finding no finding of market power of that cap. Um, In fact, there was some indication that the legacy price gaps are below the market, making it harder for new uh, entrants to compete. Yeah, uh, He had a follow-up question, but I can't find it right
2: now. So okay, but you know, l- let, let me just respond. I, I, you know, I, yes, I uh, went back and, and reviewed uh, that report, and as I mentioned before, I thought it was excellent. I thought it, it was very well balanced in many parts, and uh, uh, that uh, the, its conclusions were nuanced, and uh, I, I think that's, uh, it's to be admired uh, the work they've done.
3: So I'm just looking for a follow-up to his um, question. Oh, he said, to be clear, the CCTRT also had trouble finding evidence of market power
0: by .com.
2: Yes, well, I, I believe you know he would know his report best, uh, but i, I for my review of it, it seems that they just didn 't have evidence either way uh, sufficient evidence either way, and I believe that to be the case because I, I think that there should be a serious study undertaken on an economic basis in order to justify a price increase. Uh, based upon uh, the existence or non-existence of market power and any effect or non effective new GTLDs. Simply speaking, without uh, the evidence, there's no basis for sound policy making in this case.
3: Thank you. Okay. Uh, another ca- uh, question from Kevin Dabney. He says, it seems ICANN is only acting in the best interest of all the contracted registries, not, re- not registrants, with regards to pricing and
2: what are your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, I do have a comment on that. Uh, you know, contracted parties, uh, to the frustration of, of many other stakeholders these days, uh, appear to have um, a substantial amount of uh, input uh, and and. Uh, Influence that ICANN? you know, and the, the reasons are many, and many are obvious. Is that you know, contracted parties are on the front lines of the retail operations uh, of uh, of and wholesale uh, wholesale operations of most of what ICAN, uh does, and you know, the, the, what I believe this question really uh, the issue that it goes at is who is standing up for registrants, who on the board is going to be standing up and saying I'm a board member and I have 150 million dot-com registrants that I answer to. I've got uh, uh, nearly 11 million dot-org registrants that we answer to. Who's going to be standing up for registrants and, and looking, at, looking after them? It's not the contracted parties, and nor should they be. It's not the registries. It's not the registrars. It's not the IPC. It's not the BC. It's not anyone. Some The board, ultimately, is the one that's responsible for looking out for registrants, and that's something I believe they should keep foremost in their mind as we do.
3: Thank you, Zach. So I think we might maybe have a question, uh, time for one more. Uh, This one's from Howard New who asks, what do you think is the practical solution to the rising price of .com?
2: Okay, Uh, hi, Howard. Um, Thank you for the question, Howard. I am I, uh, not convinced that there will be a, an increase in, in the dot-com uh, a, a registration fee. Uh, so I'm hoping that ICANN will see the light and uh, maintain the current generous level of the wholesale price at 785 which is not impoverishing anyone except ICANN itself who's really a pauper in its own house here it is sitting on billions of dollars worth of domain names apparently and it's uh, it's contracting out all the money to contracted parties so i believe that ICANN uh will uh, hopefully uh, reject these requests for price increases and things will carry on as they are at least until 2024.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Zach, for, for answering the questions and for, for, for the summaries of the topics that we've been working on. Thank you, everyone, for for joining us for the, for the for our first webinar. Um, we will do our best to make it available online once we figure out how the system works. Uh, uh, if, there, you, if you do have any follow-up questions, uh, please email me um, at, at the email that I provided uh, earlier in the chat window. I'll provide it again. Um, and also, um, for the AUDA, um, for people who have interest in, in, in the situation you can go to um vote that now what was it uh, zach
2: yeah vote.com.au yes. and yeah, yeah. thank you everyone for uh, bearing with me thank and putting you. up with uh, all my comments for the last hour. And thank you so much for facilitating, facilitating this camila
3: thank you zach and we're exactly at 2 p.m well my time 2 p.m so, uh, yeah 2, 2 p.m you guys have a great uh, afternoon evening wherever you guys are joining from Thank you everyone from Australia for joining in the middle of your night, and take care.
2: Thanks very much.